This is presented by WMUA Sports. Welcome to another episode of Through the Wire, uh, episode number two of this new podcast presented by WMUA Sports. And this time, got a couple of new hosts for this one. My name is Colin Casey, joined by Seamus Kelly, both of us being uh, two guys that followed the UMass hockey team throughout all of this past year, which was, of course, ultimately cut short due to the ongoing coronavirus outbreak with the Minutemen finishing up their regular season but unable to play in the postseason with the Hockey East tournament, as well as the NCAA tournament eventually being canceled. And Seamus, I want to go back kind of to those uh, those final days of the regular season. If I'm not mistaken, you and I were both at media uh, that week, um, and yep. it, it was um, it was the second week of March. Uh, that Tuesday, we spoke with Coach Greg Carvel at Media, who, by the way, can happily announce that he will be our guest for this week's uh, podcast episode. I spoke with him one on one. You will be hearing that shortly. Uh, again, thanks to Coach Greg. Uh, thank you again to Coach Carvel for joining us, and definitely uh, an interesting listen to give some of that insight to what happened in the uh, final couple of weeks of the season. But we went to media that Tuesday and we talked about the possibility of the Minutemen playing their hockey East first round matchup against Northeastern in front of an empty Mullen center. And then just two days later, uh, a lot transpired to say the very least there was that incident in the NBA with Rudy Gobert uh, testing positive for coronavirus uh, in the game the between I think it was the Jazz and the Thunder being essentially canceled right before tip and then just shortly after that Nathan Strauss and I were on 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 the air getting ready to broadcast the A10 tournament with Cam Seibert and Don Holden down in Brooklyn that got canceled moments before tip and since then we've really seen almost nothing sporting event related outside of the Korean Baseball League um but Seamus <laughs> in it's been about two months now since all that transpired. I feel like it's felt like two years pretty much. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I, before all this happened, I just kind of sports was the only thing I really, uh, I just paid most of my free time. I just watched sports or read about sports and, or, and it was just pretty much all sports related. Um, And then all this happened and now it's kind of, uh, I don't have as much to pass the time with. I've been trying to get into some new things. Um, I've been working a little bit. I'm lucky enough to have my old summer job back, which is – I feel very lucky to have that back. But, um, yeah, it's it's crazy that – I remember when we went to media, um, like there was almost – there was no sense the season was going to get canceled, I don't think, really. Um, there was some jokes being cracked even, I think, at the time because it just wasn't something that anyone really – uh, thought would be so serious. I think we just had to stay a little bit far away from the coaches and players. And then, but it seemed, everything seemed normal. And we, we had the hockey show the morning that everything kind of got right. canceled. Uh, and we were discussing the possibility of it. And then I remember it happened. And it was, um, it was, yeah, it was obviously, it was sad at the time. It was kind of shocking because I've never, there's never been anything like it before. And yeah, it has felt like it was, a super long time ago, but it's only been two months. And I think it's just not much to do. So I think, and there's not a lot to pay attention to in the sports world. And it just feels like time's moving really slow ever since then. And it was supposed to be myself uh, and Nathan Strauss on game one. And then I think 
uh, you and I were supposed to do games two and then three if necessary of that Northeastern series. Then we were getting ready. Uh, I, I was in contact with the media department for the Hockey East tournament in the event that the Minutemen would win their first round series against the Huskies and then move on to the semifinals, which would take place at TD Garden. And I was in the middle of getting that process, and obviously it never got completed because we found out that there wasn't going to be any games being played at the Garden. So that was the – whole, the whole thing in hindsight is pretty crazy when you put it on the scale as to what's happened in the entire world. Uh, and sure enough, since then, we haven't had, we didn't have any college hockey for the first time, uh, I, I, for the first time since I believe the, uh, NCAA handed out the college hockey, uh, championship, the division one NCAA championship, there was no, uh, winner announced. I think that date back all the way, if I'm not mistaken, 1949 was when they started, uh, doing that. It was just after world war two. So they didn't have to worry about the, the stoppages due to the war. So the fact that that was halted is absolutely remarkable. First time in hockey East history as well with the hockey East conference itself approaching, uh, I want to say close to, or it's coming up on its uh, 40th anniversary. It was 35. I remember last year with the, uh, the logo on the ice. Um, anyways, so for the minute for, from a UMass perspective, you think about going into that, uh, going into that series, what would have, what we would have seen, the Minutemen were really banged up at the end of their regular season. I mean, they've lost guys left and right due to injuries. Uh, Philip Laganov, Cal Fuke were out for the season. Um, they also lost – who did they, they – lost uh, some – I think they lost George Mika right before that yeah. that playoff series was set to begin. So he, they lost him for the season as well. Mitchell Chafee had returned for the last regular season game, and it turned out to be his last game. More on that in a minute. Um, and the, 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 it was a tough stretch for the Minutemen in February that they were coming off of with the couple of blown leads against UMass Lowell, another against UConn. But they were able to get a, a hard-fought one nothing victory on senior night, and it seemed like that might have been a stepping stone to take some momentum into a team that they had beaten two out of three times in the regular season in Northeastern. And what do you think – I never played hockey, so I don't really know this perspective, but I know you, you played hockey growing up, Seamus. What do you think that – how deflating do you think it was for some of these guys, especially the seniors and guys that have ultimately signed professional contracts? What do you think that feeling of just heartbreak was for these guys to find out it's not going to be a postseason, you won't get an opportunity to go back to the Frozen Four? It's definitely just – I mean, um, I'm obviously not on the team or anything, but it's got to be just a heartbreaking situation for them. And I think – um, as someone who covers a team, I kind of felt like just very – it was unsatisfying, I guess, is how mm. I describe the ending for me. It just um, – and pretty much – I, I just like to see, like I, – I wanted I just wanted to see it play out. And it was probably going to be one of the most competitive hockey playoffs ever. And it was um, – anyone – I think a lot of different teams had a shot to go all the way. Oh, yeah. It was just – it was, it was going to be a great – national tournament I thought it was going to be a great hockey east tournament and um especially this UMass team I think definitely had a shot to go um make a pretty good run if they did well in hockey east playoffs and I think yeah it's 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 got to be heartbreaking for them and it's kind of um even I think I don't know about I can't speak for the players or anything but I think they'd probably be much happier with being able to play and losing than just no games at all that's that's just 
it's an unsatisfying ending and it's it's a it's heartbreaking for the guys who won't be able to play for UMass again. I mean, you look at what happened last year when UMass lost the national championship, Camel Carr, knowing it would be his last UMass game at that point, um, he didn't want to take the jersey off. And I, I think he was wearing the jersey in the press conference, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly. And, um, and I'm sure a lot of these guys feel this way. And um, for guys like um, McLaughlin or Leonard or Chafee, who – that was their last UMass game and they didn't even know it at Vermont or against Vermont. Um, yeah, that's, it's tough, especially when they had a potential run in front of them. And um, yeah. And something you work for all season through the playoffs and to work so hard all season to get to the playoffs and to um, be in that position to succeed in the postseason, just to get for it to be, to not have that opportunity is, um, there's nothing you can do about it, but it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a bad situation. It's tough. And then you multiply that, uh, that mindset of, uh, you know, disappointment and feeling unsatisfied by eight because there were, you know, seven other teams in Hockey East that never got an opportunity. And believe me, all eight teams, you could draw a path to them at least making it to the uh, championship game in Boston. BC being the uh, favorite coming into that, having such a strong year with a great freshman core. And, you know, a couple of seniors, including David Cotton, who was trying to cap off a storied career, he didn't get that opportunity. He's now a member of the Carolina Hurricanes organization. A team like UConn, who caught fire down the last couple of months of the season, including the big victories uh, splitting against UMass, never got an opportunity to see what they could do in the playoffs. And even some of these other teams that had a lot to prove, you know, BU had a really up and down year, but yet again, they found themselves in the thick of things getting some great scoring from Trevor Zegras, who signed his contract, I believe, right, with the uh, yeah. Anaheim Ducks. So yeah. he went one and done, and we won't, he'll never get another opportunity to, you know, play another bean pot or, make an oppor- or get an opportunity to battle for a Hockey East championship for a storied program like the Terriers. So it, all across Hockey East and all across college hockey, you have all these guys ultimately not getting that opportunity to prove to – you know, the entire college hockey world that they can, that their team is one of the best teams in the entire country. And of course, UMass being a, a top 10 team the whole season long, they were trying to prove that last year was no fluke. And uh, uh, based off the regular season, they were able to sustain that success without Kale McCarr, without Mario Ferraro or Jake Pritchard. And now they're going to have to pretty much do it all over again with no John Leonard and Mitchell Chafee, which is the point I wanted to get into next. We knew that John Leonard was more than likely going to, uh, to sign with uh, the San Jose Sharks after uh, a phenomenal year in which he was a Hobie Baker Award top 10 finalist. Award, of course, ultimately going to Scott Perunovich of the Minnesota Duluth Bulldogs and definitely a well-deserved award for Perunovich who had himself quite the career up at Duluth. Um, but for... Leonard, we knew that that was pretty much coming with the amount of goals that he scored. Pretty sure he led the nation in goals by the time the season had ended. Never got an opportunity to see how many he would finish with. Uh, but he signs, and then the, then all eyes really turned to Mitch Chafee, who wasn't drafted. In fact, he wasn't really one of the top guys coming out of juniors uh, when he was recruited by the Minutemen by Coach Greg Carville. And he just has blossomed into a phenomenal player, led the team in goals, last year, second behind Leonard this year, uh, also was a Hobie Baker Award uh, candidate. And the question was, you know, what team was he going to sign with? I remember the Bruins were mentioned as a team yep. that was interested in signing Chafee, but ultimately 
It's Bill Guerin, the GM of the Minnesota Wild, another guy who was local to Pioneer Valley, went to Wilbraham Munson, grew up in uh, – I think he grew up in Longmeadow or Wilbraham. Regardless, um, he's the one who ends up signing him uh, to a contract, and simply that just means that the Minutemen have now lost uh, each of their top two scores of their um, uh, 2019-2020 team. So now uh, the question is going to be, obviously, where that scoring is going to come from now, especially because those two guys really did a lot of the bulk of the goal scoring. So, Seamus, I guess the question I'll, I'll ask you here is, in what what or are there any guys that you see uh, coming in now? We know there's defensemen that can score. Uh, Matt Kessel came out of the scene with a lot of, uh, a lot of goals this past year. Um, Mark Del Geizo, his freshman year, scored a bunch. Didn't really get an opportunity to show that with the injuries he had to battle, from, uh, battle back from throughout the year. Who do you expect to kind of be a candidate for one of those guys to lead the team in scoring in 2020, 2021? Um, my pick would probably be – um, I don't know if it's an obvious one, but uh, Bobby Trevino, he's, I believe he's the top returning goal scorer. He's tied for it. And uh, he'll be a junior next year. And he's just been an impact player and built his years at UMass so far. And um, for an undersized forward, I guess you would call him, he's very physical. He, he's aggressive on offense. He's aggressive on defense. And um, it seems like his teammates love him. He, he's able to, in a Brad Marchand type of way, almost um, seems to always agitate the opponent. And um, it, it usually ends in a UMass power play or at least offsetting penalties, it seems like. Um, uh, and I think that, especially when he was on the line with Leonard last year, I think he had, there was a, there was a couple weeks stretch where those two were just, whether it was Trevino to Leonard or Leonard to Trevino, they kept finding the back of the net. And I think Trevino is going to take that next step to kind of become um uh, probably the, I'd, I'd predict that he'd become the top scorer, goal scorer for the team next year. Um, but there is guys up and down the roster like Reed Lebster and Cal Kafuk who start off the season really hot um, and kind of their goal scoring kind of fell off later in the year. They kind of hit a wall. Um, but I think those two guys are definitely candidates. They're both very talented offensive players. They showed with another year of experience and um, a year practicing with the team in the weight room and everything. I think they'll definitely show a lot of improvements so but yeah my pick would probably be Trevino to lead the team in scoring next year yeah and funny enough uh, the first goal of the season scored all the way back on uh, October 11th I think was the first game against RPI was Cal Fuke on a breakaway last goal of the season against Vermont it was Reed Lebster who ended up scoring that final goal I remember in the press conference there was a funny moment with Carvel because Carvel was just finishing up his press conference and Reed was coming in from the back door uh, and uh, Carvel was answering a question about, um, I think, that final goal. And he said, uh, well, uh, he goes, well, Reed's right behind you. If you want to ask him about it, you can. Uh, so that was pretty funny. And uh, he's like, he said, I think it was a back post goal. And he goes, Reed, was it a back post goal? He goes, yeah. He goes, no, there you go. So that was a, that was a pretty funny moment towards the end of the year. And, yeah, both those guys, uh, Reed Lebster, I mean, the, one of the uh, ongoing stats that I had been keeping track of was Miniman's record when, Reed Lebster would score a goal. I think they finished the year about 12-0, uh, 12-0-0 when Reed Lebster scored. So clearly whenever he finds the back of the net, it's extremely valuable. And as far as Kafuk goes, he hit a bit of a slump towards the middle of the season and then never really got a chance to kind of re, um, 
reintroduce himself to the offensive firepower due to the broken jaw that he suffered on the, uh, in that hit late in the season. So good news is a lot, these guys, uh, a lot of these guys who have been injured will have all that time to heal up. Uh, Laganov will get an opportunity to maybe bounce back for his senior year after uh, he wrapped up the season. I think it was a lower body injury for him. I remember seeing him on uh, – I think it was on, he was on crutches when we'd uh, seen him during practice one week. Uh, and George Mika, another guy who's looking to bounce back. Mika uh, eventually found himself as a regular on that fourth line. And I remember he took a huge step forward in that Denver series with some of the plays he made uh, on the four check, uh, getting in and drawing some penalties as well. So be interesting to see what George Mika's role is when he comes back due to injury and what will be his senior year this fall. Um, another thing I want to bring up, and this is uh, kind of outside of UMass and something that is really puzzled a lot of people throughout college hockey world is the announcement of the 61st program in NCAA Division I hockey, and that is Long Island, who out of, again, out of nowhere, completely, you know, surprising everyone, announcing that they would be entering, uh, this, uh, entering the fray this upcoming season, not next year, this season, which the starting point right now is currently in question because we don't know exactly what's going to happen between now and October still don't have a complete roster. They don't have a head coach and they're kind of having trouble finding a head coach at this point. So Seamus, I think uh, you share the sentiment with me and the fact that this is a really kind of a, a head scratching decision, I think by, by Long Island university. Yeah, I agree. And um, Jeff Cox is one of the, more respected, I guess, national uh, college hockey reporters. He's um, pretty big on Twitter. Uh, tweeted out on May 11th that LIU was having trouble in its search for a head coach uh, for the recently announced program. Um, and at least four potential candidates have withdrawn from consideration due to concerns over salary and funding of the program. So it's um, that's definitely, I mean, especially in such a time of uncertainty in the sports world where nobody knows, you have to kind of take it day to day because you don't know when sports will be back what in what capacity and colleges too uh there's a couple a lot of schools have said they'll be back in the fall but there's also a lot of schools who said uh not a lot but there's been a couple of schools out west who said they won't be back in the fall and it's for a team to come out and say with uh that doesn't have enough funding even for their program to announce they'll be participating next year in d1 hockey it's i'm kind of concerned for their program um it seems almost rushed. Um, I'm not, I'm no LIU insider. I don't know um, if they are, they could be prepared and they could, it might not be a rushed uh, decision or anything, but to me from the outside, it does seem like a rushed move. And if they can't afford even a head coach, that's definitely a, right. a head scratching move in my opinion. But yeah. I will say they do have really – I like their logo and I like their colors. Yeah. So if yeah, I'll compliment them anywhere, that's yeah, what it is. Yeah, they got a good co color scheme there. And I think the other thing was a lot of people expected the next team to be one of the teams that have been rumored for a while. And the two that have really come to mind for a lot of people is uh, Illinois and Georgia uh, being two teams that a lot, a lot of people expected to make the jump to D1 soon. And I still expect them to eventually. I mean, they're pretty big universities where – they won't be nearly as impacted uh, by this uh, pandemic as some of these other smaller name schools like Long Island. And we'll see how they can kind of bounce back financially. But yeah, I just didn't really understand uh, the thought process as to declaring now of all times in 
also like pretty late. You'd think that if they were to uh, announce something like this, they'd maybe be preparing uh, earlier in the year, like towards January, maybe you'd, they'd be making that announcement instead of just all of a sudden months before the season start, even if all goes well. It's, it's just something that really surprised a lot of people. And I don't think there's a single person out there that expected that announcement to be made. Yeah, definitely. A little more uh, info from the, uh, Mike McMahon from College Hockey Network, uh, or College Hockey News, I mean, sorry. Uh, he says that the, he, his sources are telling him that the total amount of money they have, their budget for coaches' salaries is $150,000, which that's a lot of money. But for a Division One college hockey team, he, he says that the average head coach makes about to be at least a little bit competitive. Uh, the, even the lowest paid coaches get about 150000 a year. If the total budget for the entire coaching staff is close to 480000 uh, so they're obviously very, very far off that number. And that's, he says, on the low end of competitive teams. Um, so that has to be concerning for the program. Once again, those budget issues, um, especially with no sports and no uh, potentially not even in-person classes next year um, and so much uncertainty in the sports world right now. I don't, I don't fully understand the decision, but I'm hoping for the best for them. I and mean, You don't want a program to fail and you hope for them to succeed, especially um, and you hope to grow college hockey. So I'm hoping for the best, but right now there has been a lot of negative reports and not much positive right. Especially uh, in an area like uh, Long Island that's got such hockey roots of players coming out of there all the time. You know, of course, New York, New York Islanders and the success they had. I mean, they're one of the best teams in the entire NHL for a four-year stretch where they won four consecutive Stanley Cups. So in such an area that needs college hockey, I like it in that regard. But financially in this time, it's, it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But again, hopefully for them, things end up working out. Be something to watch out for over the next few months. So with that, uh, we will wrap things up. But we leave you with this one-on-one interview with UMass hockey coach Greg Carvel on what's gone on in the last couple of months between him and the UMass program. Be sure to tune in and listen to that. And again, we will, uh, we will see you next week. Take care, everyone. I'd like to welcome Greg Carville to the podcast, the head coach of the UMass Minutemen hockey team. Coach, thanks for joining us. Um, I know it's been a, a pretty crazy last couple of months, but for you personally as a parent, how, is, how has it been kind of spent, spending a little bit more time with your family over the last couple of months with the, the layoff of sports? Well, I think that'll be the silver lining of this. Someday, many years from now, uh, I think we'll all, as a family, look back on this time and, and think how special it was that we were confined together. And uh, I think it's a good barometer of where your family's at. It's been, I think, if uh, a lot of fighting in your household, it's probably not a good sign. But uh, we've we've rather enjoyed it. My kids are at, at really good ages to be around. Uh, I've got daughters who are thirteen and fifteen, and they handled the, the remote schooling pretty well. They're good students. Uh, we have a seven-year-old son who uh, my wife and I are tag-teaming homeschooling, and that's uh, that's been the most difficult part of the quarantine. But um, there's parts of it that have been very enjoyable. They, yeah, uh, as as a uh, as a uh, kid who, well, I guess not a kid anymore, but uh, 
as someone with a uh, with a mother's uh, school teacher, I know how tough it can be for parents at this point with all these um, adjustments to remote learning. And um, it's certainly been an adjustment for virtually all of us. But uh, I think the one thing a lot of people can agree on is being able to spend a lot more time with your family is one of the positives that people can take out of this coronavirus outbreak. Um, now shifting towards hockey, I want to remind or I want to rewind back to all the way back to the second week of March, which seemed like years ago at this point. Um, the talk of media that week, you guys were heading into uh, your first playoff matchup against Northeastern, uh, and a lot of eyes were on how that series was going to play out, especially because it had been a while since the Minutemen had played Northeastern. Last time you guys played was in November. Um, the, the idea at that point in time was that the game was going to be played in front of an empty Mullen center crowd that night. And I remember you'd said something about how disappointing it would be to not play in front of that, uh, that huge atmosphere at the Mullen center, looking at it back at it now in May, after what has taken place in those two months since then with virtually all sporting events being put on hold due to the virus. Can you, how hard is it to believe how much things have changed in that short, relatively short period of time? Yeah, everything's changed. The hard part is not knowing how much the change is going to, how far it's going to go into the future. That's, to me, the really difficult thing. I think we're all way past um, struggling over what we had to give up behind us. I think now we're struggling with what we might have to give up in front of us. And if, uh, you know, if, if universities decide that they're going to continue remote learning, that doesn't bode well for athletics and and that's what we do. That's what I do. That's my job. Um, so we, we've continued to coach and communicate pretty well with our players from, from a distance. But um, that's now the, the forefront of concern is um, how we get past this. And to me, it's a, it's a medical issue that until there's vaccines or scientific ways to, to help nothing's nothing's changed we've stayed at home for two months and i don't know what's different today than it was uh, march 14th or whatever whenever we were told to, to go home and, and i know uh as someone who's followed, who's covered the team for a couple of years now what what some people don't really know is how this uh this hockey season doesn't just start right away in the first couple of weeks of october there's a lot of there's months of practice that go into it starting in the summer uh so with that being a factor as well, uh, how important is it going to be for things to really imp- – I mean, it's obviously, the sooner the better uh, that things can improve and start opening back up. But how important is it going to be for getting these guys the reps that they've kind of been missing if we, have, we experience some delays that impact the start of the season? So let's say best-case scenario is that – we all come back to school in September and everything's normal. As you said, people don't realize that our players basically get two weeks off. Uh, if the season ends, they get two weeks to let their bodies recover. And then a very critical juncture of the season is the spring training. That's where uh, a lot of kids gain a lot of strength. And, and they're at ages where they can take huge steps forward. It's kids who come in at 18, 19 years old uh, a year later, they're, they're significantly stronger, and this is really, uh, really critical times in their development. So to not have that for our program, that we view that as a 
again, extremely critical part of, of their growth and our, the strength of our program is what they do at this time of the year. And so that, that leads into the summertime where we're fortunate that we can bring our whole team to campus in the summer for, uh, for at least a month. And again, that's a huge time of growth. It's not just the physical growth, it's the team bonding, it's the, uh, the culture building that we really focus on through the summer. So we've had to transition all that to remote activities. And we hired a new strength coach a week before the pandemic. And so he hardly had time to get to know people's names. And, uh, but he's doing a tremendous job working with the kids at their homes. And you know, it's, it's hard to get a lot stronger if you don't have a lot of weight to push around. And that's, that's the, one of the battles. But the good thing is, is that it's not like we're the only team and our competitors are, are doing uh, the norm. It's who can do this better. And it's, we're, check, we're looking at this as an opportunity to take a step forward and do a better job than our, than our opponents, just like in anything else we do, is that we want to try to be better at this. We want to be better at remote training than uh, the rest of the teams in, in divisional hockey, and that's our goal right now. Right, yeah, of course, the uh, the battle always continues, even when the – in a situation like this where there's not really a whole lot that can be done on the ice. Um, I want to circle back to the end of last year. Um, after – you and your coaching staff and the players had kind of learned that the writing was on the wall for the season and that you guys had played your final game. Was there, was there kind of a, uh, a, a final meeting between you and the rest of the players before everyone went their separate ways back to, uh, to social distancing and whatnot? Was there kind of like a, uh, a realization uh, as a group that you, it kind of just hit you suddenly that, wow, this season, it's it just it's over just like that, and you don't you don't even get an opportunity to prove to prove to the college hockey landscape what you guys were capable of in the playoffs. Yeah, there wasn't really much chance for closure. <clears throat> it was a Thursday, I believe, if I remember correctly, that uh, they finally canceled everything, and and we had called the team in, and uh, it's hard to to. You know, you share some information, but there's no closure in that to the season. Um, you know, and then I haven't seen those kids since. And the seniors who uh, just graduated on Friday, um, it's it's difficult. And, um, you know, it's it's just what we have to deal with. But it was it's unfortunate because uh, we had the big year the year before and go to the Frozen Four and – Pretty much the whole hockey world was wanting to see if we were a flash in the pan or if there was some um, legitimacy to our program being, you know, a top team in the, in the country. And so we were, we were, I think we were in the top 10 all year in the, in the pairwise and in, in the polls. And I think we finished eight, uh, if I remember correctly. And so we were guaranteed another spot to the NCAA tournament. We had 100% guaranteed that. And that would have been just the third time in the, in the entire history of the program and it would have been consecutive years. So that, that to me, um, where we're at as a program, that was, that, that was a hard pill to swallow because we're, we've been working really hard to legitimize and those invites to the NCAA tournament, which to me, I, I consider that's, we should hang a banner. We, we earned that. Um, we started, we have two banners. Don't know when we made the NCAA tournament for, and I don't see any reason why we shouldn't again. 
but beyond that, you know, it's a banner. What, what really matters is what people perceive. And I think the perception of UMass hockey is that we're a, we're a very strong hockey program now. Yeah. And uh, this past season, of course, certainly cementing that being a, a top two team in hockey. Again, as you mentioned, a top 10 team throughout most of the season. Uh, I'd like to quickly focus on that final regular season game against uh, UVM. It was an emotional game for your opponent with Kevin Snedden playing in his final uh, game, or I'm sorry, coaching his final game behind the bench for the Catamounts. But in hindsight, there's now you can look back and see there's a lot of emotions on your side of things with it being the final game for your senior class, final games for John Leonard and Mitchell Chafee after they signed uh, respective contracts with the Sharks and Wild. Is there any solstice in looking back to that night and kind of feeling good about how the season wrapped up with a with a hard-fought one nothing win against a hungry Vermont team and for this group despite losing the opportunity to play postseason hockey? Yeah, that was a that was, I knew that was going to be a difficult game because uh, Kevin's a good guy and I, I'm sure his players love and respect him. And they, they were going to give us everything they had. And then, of course, their goaltender is one of the elite goalies. And he was he was in the zone. And so I think we scored late in the game to win. I'm sure it was under five minutes, I think, maybe under three minutes. Um, but yeah, that's uh, – usually you, you want to say you won your last game of the season. If you, if you can say that, then that's, that's a very good thing. But we won our last game. and. Um, but I look back at that game, like you said, we had all five of those guys, our three seniors and the two guys that signed contracts. They'll play and they all played well. And although we only won by a single goal, I thought we were dominant in that game as we, as we are lots of nights at the Mullen Center. And uh, yeah, it's uh, when I think back about the, those five kids, I'll, I'll think back about that game and, and how well we played and how like many nights we just kept playing, 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 and eventually found a way to, to win a game. And so that was kind of a trademark that we tried to build for ourselves. And, and those five kids all played huge roles. You know, Johnny and Mitch were all American players. Uh, Jake McLaughlin became an all league player. Nico Hildebrand was a two-year captain and, and Jack Suter uh, took one of the biggest steps forward of any player over the course of two seasons where he went from fourth line center to first line center from his junior to senior year. So, um, five kids that we're going to miss next year, but, um, we're, we're at a point now where, where we've got, uh, four full recruiting classes and we should have good depth and uh, we may not have, uh, you know, all Americans next season, not saying that we won't, but, um, we're gonna have to start winning continuously by, uh, by, by being a good, strong team with a lot of good depth. And one of the things I realized, uh, recently was Mitchell Chafee this being his last game he had missed three weeks prior to that final game and the, the assumption was at the time obviously oh he'll be back for the playoffs but looking at the fact that he was able to suit up for the Minutemen for that last game I know you can't speak for Mitch but as a coach how important do you think it was or, or was it to you personally to see him on the ice in hindsight for that final game, knowing that what we know now and that that was, in fact, his final game. Yeah, when you look at it that way, that would have been pretty pretty harsh for him. I think more just him personally that 
he didn't know he was, you know, no, no one knew where he was playing his last game, but that he wasn't injured when the last game was played. And, um, you know, it was a long stretch, three weeks without, without Mitchell, who was the captain and, and one of our most uh, reliable players and effective players. So, you know, we, we struggled, I should say, we, struggled. we missed him. And, um, again, even though we only won one nothing, we were a different team with him on the ice. And uh, so for his sake, I'm glad he got to play one more game uh, before that injury and carry some positive um, emotions uh, uh, going out as a UMass hockey player. I, I feel like I've talked a lot about Vermont here, but I guess one more subject being that um, – Ben Barr recently was uh, a finalist for that head coaching vacancy uh, and was, I, th- I think, the runner-up, essentially, finishing behind Todd Woodcroft, uh, the former Winnipeg Jets assistant. One of the things I've noticed with uh, not just you, but with Ryan Banford and really the whole athletic department is the, uh, the, the pride that's really felt throughout UMass for when players move on to a bigger stage give you a couple of examples. Obviously, Kale, when he ended up uh, making his debut for Colorado, Mario, and now John uh, signing with San Jose, and then, of course, Mitch Chafee as well. Um, as happy as I'm sure you are, you would be to have Ben back behind the bench. Is there a similar sense when you see an assistant coach like that have some of these offers come up and get an opportunity to kind of spread their wings as a head coach? Yeah, I, I don't – I don't – view myself as part of that that's that's all Ben. he's he's put together a career of uh, excellent work and excellent relationship building to build the reputation that he has and it's just a matter of time um i i think just personally he's, he's still a young guy there's very few head coaches that that are his age and uh todd woodcroft was hired before him i think todd's 10 years older it's so as as you know, every job that opens up, you're going to hear Ben Barr's name. That's a huge compliment to him, and he's earned that. But um, he's still, he's still, I think, 37, 38 years old. Um, I didn't become head coach until I was 41, I think. It's, uh, so his time is coming. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And we're in a world now where there's multiple jobs opening up every year. And so as soon as one opens up, uh, I have to start thinking about replacing him. And, um, you know, I just feel that, uh, you know, as much time as we have with Ben is, is a huge plus for our program. Uh, I've learned a lot from him. And I'm sure he's learned a lot from me. He's worked under uh, other really good coaches. So he, he knows what he's doing. And um, and someday he'll be he'll be in the right spot at the right time. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised we haven't lost him yet. But um, um, it, I, I really enjoy working with him. And that's... And that's that's a big thing of what we've done at UMass is bringing really good people and uh, a tremendous work ethic. And, and Ben exemplifies that as much as anybody. And, and uh, you know, he'll get his chance, and everybody knows that. Yeah, and it seems like with every vacancy we've seen over the last couple of uh, – well, over the last almost year, I would say, you see every, every time a new vacancy comes up. I, I even saw uh, with Dartmouth what, him being one of the rumored guys that – they might look at. I'm not exactly sure how long that uh, discussion is, and I'm sure it's been impacted by the coronavirus at this point. Speaking of the coronavirus, uh, I want to talk about how this time without hockey has kind of been for you personally. Uh, since since you graduated from St. Lawrence back in 90, 1993, 
hockey has pretty much kind of been your profession as a player, head coach, assistant coach, a scouting coordinator, or even a director of hockey operations. Um, with virtually no professional or collegiate hockey being played during these few months, how hard has it been for you personally to kind of be in this period of your life where something that you've been accustomed to being surrounded by for most of your entire life just kind of being wiped away and without really any sense of, of warning? Well, the fortunate thing is that the timing is, is pretty good because, um, you know, unless you make it to the Frozen Four, no one's playing hockey in April. And April and May are really the, the, the months where we try to decompress, slow down, uh, try to get back to some normal sleeping habits and, and health. So that the timing is, is good for that. So we don't feel like we're, we're really missing out on too much because we still communicate uh, almost daily with staff and, and a couple times a week with players. So we're, we're still, they're still, you know, functioning almost the same as if I was going to the, to the office every day. So that the hard part will be if we get into the fall and we're still not allowed to coach. And I think that's when things get really tough. As I said, we, we really enjoy the summer and getting our players on campus to have that time, a time where they can just train and, and you can just get to know kids without, you know, kind of outside of the academic environment. Um, so that, that'll be hard. These, these weeks and months will start to, to, to add up. And then again, if we, if we can't get going in the fall, I think that's when the real, the real struggle will be. I'd like to wrap up also with this one last question, looking ahead to whenever you and your team reunite and return to competition, hopefully being in fall as scheduled. Um, would you consider this next season to be sort of a, a fresh chapter in this UMass hockey program? Essentially, I know the, the term that's been coined is hashtag new mass by you countless times. Would this essentially be kind of a new new mass or would it be, uh, would you kind of, relate this to being unfinished business after being a top two team in the conference last year and a top 10 program nationally. So would you, would you say it's more of a, a turning the page on a new chapter in, in UMass hockey, or is it still just kind of trying to prove to everybody that you're a team that's, uh, that's going to be around for years to come? No, I wouldn't use it. I wouldn't use the phrase turn the page because then you're, you're, you're nullifying all the work that's gone into getting to this point. And our message to our group is that, that we've gotten to this point. How we need to go higher. We need to push harder. We need to push forward. So it's a continuation. No, no matter what happened, uh, whatever we're dealing with, um, you know, turning the page to me is, is almost as a negative connotation. Like let's forget the past. No, absolutely. We want it. We're very proud of what we've done over the last couple of years. And it's up to whoever's in the program right now to, to, uh, to, to take the program to higher ground. And, and mostly what I mean by that is just doing things at, at high standards where win or lose, we're, we're proud of what we do. We're proud of how we do things. And uh, the hope is that we're doing things better than our opponents. And uh, if we have the right attitude, the right commitment, and uh, you know, we have fun doing it, and, and that's what I really enjoy most about my job is is helping kids realize what their potential is, you know, holding them to high standards, 
keeping them accountable, doing it through trust and relationships. Um, when you're doing those things with real integrity and with real genuineness in everything that you do, um, you, you see tremendous growth. And, and that's, you know, Mitchell Chafee wasn't, he wasn't a really sought after player in junior. Right. Um, our, our assistants knew him. They thought he had great potential. And, and Mitchell realized that potential. John Leonard was a very average USHL hockey player. He was the leading scorer in the country. Like, those kids got better. Jake McLaughlin, same thing. Like, these kids weren't coming out of the USHL as uh, five-star recruits. They were five-star players when they left UMass. And that's, and that's because of standards. That's because of uh, maturity and, and, again, being surrounded by good people, good leadership, um, really pushing the kids the right way. And that's, that's what we'll never turn the page on. That's what we'll, we'll try to do better. We'll try to continue to, to figure out ways to do it better. And there's a long way to go. You know, I've, I've, I've learned a lot as a head coach over the four years that I've been here. And almost every year you learn, you got a lot more, you know, every year I learn, I, I need to be a lot better than, than what I was last year. And, uh, um, but at the same time, extremely, extremely proud of, of what our program's done. I'm extremely proud of the staff, uh, the players. And, um, you know, I just, I just hope that we continue to, to do things in ways that the university is, is proud to say, uh, you know, look at our UMass hockey team. And this, the hope is that we will see UMass hockey back on the ice this October to open up their season on time. Uh, Coach, I want to thank you for joining me. Uh, and as always, uh, hope that you and your family stay safe uh, during this, these tough times and uh, that you enjoy that time spent with your family. But again, thank you for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, Colin, and I thank you. You do you do a great job through the season. That you're very committed. You're at the rink all the time, and you know it's, it's hard not to recognize that as a coach that that uh, you, you do an excellent job. I, I certainly means a lot coming from you. Uh, and again, uh, hopefully, I'll be seeing you sooner rather than later back on the ice. Uh, coach Greg Carvel joining us on the podcast. Thanks again, Coach. Thank you.